All right, welcome to a series called What's the Difference? And over the next 12 weeks at least, we're going to be looking at the differences between world religions and denominations. And I say uh, 12 weeks. Uh, We've planned through the end of this year, and that is 12 weeks counting today through December the 28th. That will be uh, 12 Sundays during this hour, and I hope you'll be able to be with us for most, if not all, of that. And if we need some additional time, we'll carry over into the first of the year, but we may well be able to finish it by the end of the year. But we have 89 pages, <coughs> excuse me, 89 pages to go through that are part of the notebook that you have in front of you, and we'll start that today. I have one housekeeping item, though, before we do, and that is uh, we have this coming Saturday an event for our church that we have every year in October, and that's our hayride and bonfire. And for that, we have uh, food items that we need folks to volunteer to bring. So the last couple of weeks in this hour, we've tried to circulate a sign-up sheet, but folks are listening to what's going on. That's a good thing, but then forget to pass it to the person next to them, and it kind of dies. So it's kind of like you're trying to get the wave going, and then it just dies with somebody. (laughs) So you can't be the wave killer, all right? You've got to be passing that sheet on to somebody else, even if you're not coming which we hope you will this coming Saturday, everybody, whether you're a member of our church, and frankly, even especially if you're not a member of our church, because we have these in order for us to get to know you better. But everybody's invited, and those of you who are guests do not feel obligated to bring anything, but do come. But in any case, pass that on to the next person. So we're going to get two of them going, one on each side, and they're starting at the back. And then at the end of our time, at noon today, Hal is going to remind me, to ask where are those two sheets, and hopefully we'll be able to recover them, all right? So keep those moving if you would. All right, today we begin, what's the difference? And the very first page in your notes, past the table of contents, we have the introduction to to world religions. We live in a, what is called a multicultural society. And that multiculturalism of necessity means that there are going to be competing claims to truth, including religious truth. And so a a course like this would really not have been much help to folks uh, 30 years ago, certainly 50 years ago in America, because we did not have manifestations of uh, competing religions with Christianity Uh, in those years. But over the last several decades, we've had increasing displays of other kinds of religions that compete very directly with Christianity. And so a course like this becomes necessary for the benefit of those who are Christian or for those who are investigating Christianity because you're being faced with competing claims. Those who are Christian want to know how to speak with and dialogue with those of other faiths. And those investigating Christianity need to see it compared and contrasted with those faiths. And so a course like this then is necessary. And we say at the top uh, where it says introduction world religions, there was a day when most North Americans could live their entire life and could live their entire lives without encountering a religion other than Christianity. However, the forces of technology and globalization have made the world a much smaller place so that the average person is now confronted with a dizzying array of competing claims to truth. Therefore, it is increasingly necessary to know the tenets 
and beliefs of rival world religions and seek to identify what, if any, significant differences exist between them. This section is going to survey the origin and beliefs of the world's major non-Christian religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism. Now, I'll tell you at the outset that we're going to cover Islam in the first few weeks. And then we're going to leave the others, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, for, for later toward the end of our course. We're going to move toward denominations after that because I found in teaching this course a couple of times that people are most interested in Islam uh, for reasons that are probably obvious and they're most interested in learning about the denominations and less interested in and, less, uh, and, and encounter less uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism. So we will spend the first couple of weeks on Islam, then we will go and spend several weeks on denominations and some church history, and then come back to the other world religions. Now here are the topics then that we're going to cover in this course. What's the origin of each of the religions? What are their essential beliefs and practices? What does to- how does tolerance apply to our view of competing religions? We'll try to answer the question, are we all worshiping the same God, or do all religions lead to God? And what are the differences between the major world religions and, in particular, biblical Christianity? Now, we have recommended resources for you there, and our folks in the Resource Center are, are going to obtain some of these and we'll obtain more of them if you, if you want. But I want to just to highlight four of them in particular that if you're interested in any that I would recommend. The one at the very bottom by Ravi Zacharias, Jesus Among Other Gods. If you're going to get any of these, I would suggest you get that one. And that one happily is still in print. But then secondly, Erwin uh, Lutzer, Christ Among Other Gods, is a very, very good book. And then thirdly, Fritz Reidenauer, So What's the Difference, from which I got the title of this course, that book. And then a, the, the one uh, second to the last, Why I Am Not a Muslim, written by one who grew up Muslim, and then, as the title suggests, uh, describing why is not. So those four are in that order, those that I would recommend for you. And if you want help getting those, uh, then see the folks at our resource center, which is straight through this back door and across across the hall. All right, let's begin on page number two then. And then after covering a little bit on page two, we're going to go to Islam on page, on page seven. But on page two, the God who is there. And you see the subtitle, The Religious Impulse. And what we're saying there is that all people were made to know God. That all people therefore have a religious impulse. That when you speak with a child, and a child who was not raised in a religious home, that the child will ask questions that are of transcendent nature. The child will ask, where did I come from? Where is God? They'll ask questions about God without you talking to them about God. And the reason children will do that, and the reason you see across cultures throughout world history, people worshiping is because people were made to worship. There is the innate religious impulse. And so from a biblical worldview standpoint, we have three points for you on that religious impulse. First, we were made by God. Those that are in our... uh, Master Plan for Life class on Wednesday evenings in Community Institute, 
We just covered a couple of weeks ago the very first lesson in that course, which we call a systematic theology for regular people. And that very first lesson, the very first point in the first lesson is that God exists. And if you were in that class, you heard me say that the Bible begins with God and assumes that people know there is a God. The Bible begins with God and assumes that people know there is a God. So the very first line in the Bible is, in the beginning, God. And without any attempt to prove that there's a God, without any attempt to marshal evidence for this God, the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God. The reason the Bible does that is because all creatures, in particular humanity, were made to to know God. And so people have an innate understanding that there is a God. And having been made in His image, we are made to reflect that God. So Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So we're made by God, and then we were made to know God. Romans chapter 1 in your Bible simply says, They, speaking of all people, all humanity, knew God. But then Romans chapter 1 goes on to talk about how this knowledge of God has become perverted. And how the God that we were made by and that we were made for now has been made into uh, images of birds and animals and creeping things, Romans chapter 1 says. But they knew God. All people have knowledge of God from a biblical standpoint, says Romans chapter 1. We were made by God and we were made to know God. Now, how do we know that we were made to know God? Here's one way to think about it. If indeed God created, and the Bible is clear that He did, and that we are the product of His direct creative activity, then God created the first man, and the first man had to know innately that the one with whom He first spoke, the first communication He ever had, was with this God who made Him. He had to know that this was His God. Think about it. You're the first man. You're Adam. And the Creator speaks to you. How do you know who He is? You don't have anybody to go to to say, has anybody checked this guy out? (laughs) Has he been vetted by Homeland Security? You have no, have no, no basis to say, how can you prove to me who you are? The moment you believe then that we are the products of the creative activity of God, you must also then believe that we were made to know this God. Because he was here, he made us, and now we have relationship with him. Adam knew the voice of God because he was made to know the voice of God. And all people are made to know the voice of God and thus have the religious impulse. We were made by God in it to know God. And then thirdly, we were made to worship God. When we say to worship God, when we worship, we ascribe supreme worth That's what the word worship, it's a good way for you to think of what worship means, worth-ship. And we ascribe supreme value, supreme worth to a person or thing. And we were made to ascribe supreme value and worth to the God who made us. So we were made to worship God, but because of the entrance of sin into God's good world, we have substituted things of worth in the place of God. And that's why Romans chapter 1 goes on to say this. We have it listed for you there. They knew God, but they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, 
but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So from a biblical standpoint, where have competing religions come from? Because in the beginning there was God, and in the beginning there was one religion. From where then did other religions come? And Romans chapter 1 says it's in rejecting the God that they know. And in rejecting the God that they know, ascribed value, worth, worship to lesser things. And then as a result of that, you have the development, middle of page 2, of man's religion. The development of man's religion. So originally, I said now we have multiculturalism. Originally, there was one culture. One God, one humanity, and one culture. And then multiculturalism became perverted with false understandings about this, about this God. And how did that develop? And that's what the next several pages are about. Now, it gets very pedantic and academic. In fact, most of this is from a book at the bottom of page 2. You see Winfred Corduan, Neighboring Faiths. And that book, Neighboring Faiths, is a textbook that is taught at the, the college level about the development of religion. So it's fairly technical, but here's the, the point I want you to see. And then you can read those pages on your own. But look on page 4. <coughs> on page 4, you see the heading, Original Monotheism. And what a scholar named Schmidt and then following him, Corduan, have, have done is they have marshaled evidence from cultures all over the world, and civilizations all over the world, that originally man was monotheistic. Originally there was one God, a belief in one God, monotheism, that's what that means, one God. And original monotheism is found in examples throughout the world. That original monotheism, belief in one God, became perverted over time so that there were many substitute gods, many of those being made in the likeness of birds and reptiles and, and fish and so on. So on page 5, you have examples of original monotheism from around the world. So I would encourage you to, to read that if you're interested in, in that. But the key point in those pages is this, that originally there is God and there is one culture and there is one religion. And that one God and that one religion over time because of sin becomes perverted. And the Bible teaches that very clearly, but not only does the Bible teach that, but a careful look at the history of civilization shows that as well. That's what those pages are about. Now, I want to then begin to look at one of those religions that has developed over time, beginning on page 7. We're going to look at Islam beginning today if we, have, if we have time to get to the pages on Islam. But there's another religion we need to discuss even before we get to Islam or any of the other religions. And that's the one mentioned at the top of page 7, the religion of tolerance. Before we move ahead and we look at rival competing claims to truth, we need to first ask ourselves and then answer the question, 
whether or not there is such a thing as truth or whether or not all religions are basically the same, whether or not they are all true, even if they say competing things, contradictory things. And that's what I mean by Jesus and the religion of of tolerance. The reason we need to spend some time answering this is because of this. I said we live in a multicultural society. We live in a, a society, to put it another way, that is pluralistic. So most of you know what that means. Plural means many, more than one. And so we live, in a, we live in a society in which there is more than one expression of religious faith. And in fact, there are, there are many. So we live in a pluralistic society. Now, for my part, I am glad that we have the freedom to express ourselves without fear of persecution, whether Christian or Muslim or, or whatever. So we live in a pluralistic society, and from my standpoint, that's a, a very good thing. For us, religious freedom. But pluralism, this good thing, in the minds of many, very easily becomes another thing. Instead of pluralism, it becomes relativism. Pluralism easily morphs into relativism, and that's a different thing, quite different. Pluralism says this, everybody is entitled to their view. And we have many views, and everyone's entitled to express it. That's a good thing. Relativism says this, that all views are equally valid. And that's completely different. So I am very much in favor, and Scripture is very much in favor, of separation of church and state. We will see that in Islam there is no such thing, of separation of mosque and state. But Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. So the Bible teaches separation of church and state. And separating church from state means that there will be no forced religion on on anyone. And that's what we have in America, and I'm thankful for it, pluralism. But that's quite different from relativism, which says that all views are equally valid. And so we have to discuss then this notion of tolerance that really morphs into a relativism that says they're all six of one and a half dozen of the other. So top of page 7, in our culture, it's common to minimize and even ignore differences between competing points of view. In the name of tolerance and respect, contradictory assertions are said to be equally valid, even when those claims strike at the very heart of a religious belief. For instance, there are significant discrepancies between Islam and Christianity at several crucial points. So right now, I just want to show that Christianity and Islam are incompatible. They're not the same God. They do not believe in the same God. Now, that doesn't prove which one is right. It simply says they are different. And there are irreconcilable differences between them. And despite the fact that we live in this age of tolerance and respect that minimizes those differences, these differences actually go to the very heart of the Christian religion. So, for example, page 7, the question, is Jesus God? And the Bible is very clear that Jesus is God. For instance, the Bible says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Notice that word, Word, has a capital W. Was the Word, whatever the Word is, the Word was with God. And notice this phrase, the Word was God. So whoever or whatever the Word is, the Word was God. But then John goes on in verse 14 to say this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So notice, the Word was God and the Word became flesh. And 2,000 years ago, that's precisely what Jesus Christ did in what we call the incarnation, the enfleshing, becoming flesh. That is, he added to what he already was, humanity. So he continued to be God, but he added humanity to who he already was and thus became the God-man, God and man in one unique person. Now the Bible teaches then Jesus is God. The one who became flesh is God. But what about the Koran? What does the Koran say? The Koran does not allow for the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and therefore the divinity of Jesus. So here is one verse from the Quran, Surah 4 and verse 171. Now, Surah is the name for a chapter in, in the Quran, And so you'll see that throughout these notes on, on Islam. It simply means chapter. And Surah 4, 171 says, Say not three, cease. It is better for you. Allah is only one God. Now, why the say not three? We will see that in the career of Muhammad, he became familiar with Christianity. And he became familiar with some of the teachings of Christianity. He became familiar with the fact that Christianity teaches that God is three persons, one God in three persons, the Trinity. I prefer the triunity of God. So he had heard about that. But we're going to see that he misunderstood what it, what it meant. And he rejected it. And so he says, say not three. Notice he doesn't say, say not four. Say not six. Why say not three? Because he's referring to Christianity and the doctrine of the threeness of God, the Trinity. Then Surah 5 says this in verse 73, They truly disbelieve who say Allah is the third of three, when there is no God save the one God. If they desist not from so saying, a painful doom will fall on those of them who disbelieve. So a judgment pronounced on those who believe in the triune God. They indeed disbelieve who say, Allah is the Messiah, son of Mary. So to say that the son of Mary, namely Jesus, is God, is false, says the Quran. They truly disbelieve who say, Allah is the Messiah, son of Mary. The Messiah himself said, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your God. Whoso, now notice this, ascribeth partners unto Allah, for him Allah hath forbidden paradise. His abode is the fire. Now, notice that phrase. Whoso ascribeth partners unto Allah. Partners. Do you know what's being said there? In Muhammad's misunderstanding of Christianity, Jesus was the Son of God, the product of procreation between God the Father and Mary. That's the misunderstanding of Muhammad inscribed in the Quran. And so when he says whoever ascribes partners unto Allah as if, as if God procreates, as if God has children, as if God engaged in intercourse to produce a child. But of course Christianity says no such thing. It's a misunderstanding but it's inscribed in the, in the Quran. And then again in Surah 575, the Messiah, son of Mary, 
was no other than a messenger. Messengers the like of whom had passed away before him. And his mother was a saintly woman, and they both used to eat earthly food. Now he's right about that last portion, eating earthly food and his mother being a, a saintly woman. But that first portion, that he was none other than a messenger, is again contrary to Christianity. He was indeed a messenger, but much more than a messenger. He was the messenger of God, and in fact, he was God. So on this central question of who Jesus is, Islam and Christianity differ sharply and say, teach contradictory things. So in our culture of respect and tolerance, we have to simply tell the truth. These are not the same thing. And this is not then the same God. So on the question of Jesus' God, they differ markedly. Did Jesus die for our sins? Again, central to Christianity. We have behind me a cross. And the cross is universally the symbol of Christianity because Jesus there, God, the God-man, died on the, on the cross for our, our sins. And the Bible teaches that very clearly. Isaiah chapter 53, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds you are healed. we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. But then you look at uh, other passages in the New Testament, page 8. That's a prediction in the first part of your Bible, Isaiah chapter 53, about the one who would come and who, what he would do, namely die for the sins of his people. But then in the New Testament, when Jesus actually does come, we find him actually doing that very thing. Matthew 16, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then in John 19, we find that actually happening. And then Romans chapter 5, looking back on it, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There could be no more central claim to Christianity than that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And yet, here's what the Quran says. Because of their saying, we slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, Allah's messenger. Notice, they slew him nor crucified, but it appeared so unto them. They slew him not for certain, but Allah took him up unto himself. Allah was ever mighty wise. A direct claim that Jesus in the Quran, the holy book of Islam, that Jesus did not die on the cross, and in fact did not die, but rather was taken up to, to Allah. So does this, does this really matter? Well, as you might be able to tell, I think it probably does. And I have a long quotation for you at the last half of page 8 and the top of page 9. I'll let you read that on your own, but it's a very helpful quote from Erwin Lutzer's book. But notice on page 9, middle of page 9, the last line, last paragraph from Lutzer. 
Just above is religious truth absolute. He says this, if you were on a talk show and said, I believe in Christ, you would be applauded. But if you were to say Christ is the Savior for everyone, boos would echo throughout the crowd. Isn't that true? You can say, I believe in Christ. But if you make exclusive claims to Christ, Christ is God. And God came and died for our sins. If you say that, now you have violated the religion of tolerance that has taken hold in in our land. So is religious truth absolute? Now notice we have religious there in bold. We're not just asking, is truth absolute? We're asking, is religious truth absolute? While some deny the existence of any absolute truth, others admit that there are absolutes, but only in the areas of science and mathematics. Religious truth is, according to this view, simply a, quote, leap of faith. And as they explain it, it turns out to be a leap of blind faith. However, the attempt to restrict absolute truth to the realm of science is self-defeating because the statement, all truth is restricted to science, is itself unscientific. Uh, Just think about that for a moment. But if somebody says all truth is restricted to science, how can you prove that? Can you prove that by the scientific method? And of course the answer is no. Itself is unscientific and therefore is false according to its own standard. So is religious truth necessary? Is there transcendent truth that is necessary, that that exists and is necessary? And many people, having grown up in our culture of tolerance and then our culture of relativism, think no. I showed a video a couple of months ago in our worship hour that showed a young man being interviewed about whether or not there's any such thing as absolute religious truth. Some of you remember that and how he stumbled over himself to try to to answer that. I've given these illustrations to some of you before, but uh, Cal Thomas is a journalist. He's a syndicated column in a number of newspapers. He's a Christian as well. And uh, many years ago, he wrote a book called Book Burning. And it was about the fact that Christians, at the time he wrote the book, were being accused all over the country of trying to take books off the shelves in libraries and only have books on the shelves that we approve of and all of that. And his book called Book Burning actually showed that, at the time at least, it was harder for Christians to get their books on the shelves than it was for Christians to get other people's books off the shelves. I mean, he made the point in the book, we would love to have the problem of people trying to take our books off the shelves. Because our books aren't even on the shelves. And in that book, he made the point that people are becoming less and less tolerant of the absolute claims of Christianity. And he illustrated it by saying that he has had opportunity to go around to college campuses and speak on the need for absolute truth, including absolute religious truth. And invariably, he says in the book, after I will finish one of these talks, I will have students come up to me and they look at me like I have four heads. Because... They have been taught that relativism and that all claims to truth are equally valid, and so making an exclusive claim to truth is completely foreign to them. And he describes a couple of those encounters. One of them, he said, a young man came up to them, a very self-assured young man, came up to Thomas and he said, look, I'm a 3.8 grade point average political science student, and I don't need you, God, Jesus, the Bible, Christianity, or anybody else telling me how to live my life. And Thomas, uh, Cal Thomas said to him, "Um, you know, you're pretty self-assured. What if I believe that there should be a law 
that all people who are cocky should be shot. <laughs> and uh, he says, well, that would, be, that would be against the law. And he says, yeah, but what if I could get enough people that agree with me that cocky people should be shot and we vote to change the law, then what? Well, our 3.8 grade point average political science student hadn't thought about that. He said another young lady came up to him. Same idea. I don't need Christianity. I don't need God, the Bible. And Cal Thomas changed the illustration a bit. And he said, all right, let's suppose you and I are neighbors. And let's suppose that uh, my dog messes on your lawn. And you believe that people who allow their dogs to mess on other people's lawns should be, should be killed. And she says, well, I wouldn't do that. And he says, well, why not? And she says, because of my socialization process. He said, you're what? My socialization process. I was socialized. My parents taught me that that kind of thing would be wrong. And he says, oh, okay, good. Well, then let's reverse it. Let's suppose your dog messes on my lawn. And I didn't have your parents or your socialization process. And I think people who allow their dogs to mess on other people's lawns should be shot. Would it be okay for me to shoot and kill you? And again, she hadn't thought about it. Now, this is the situation that many people have in our culture today. They deny the need for absolute transcendent truth, but they can't live without it. And on page 9, lest one doubt, second paragraph, whether such a view of truth is widely held, he need but visit virtually any college campus and interview the students and faculty. There he'll find views such as those espoused by the well-known English philosopher David Hume. Hume said this, The Christian religion not only was at first attended with miracles, but even to this day cannot be believed by any reasonable person without one. If we take in hand any volume of divinity or school of metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, now notice, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Commit it to the flames if it does not have abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number or experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence. But notice what Ravi says. The problem with this statement is that the test itself does not pass the test. Hume's grand statement, his grand statement again, that it's got to have quantity and, and number, abstract reasoning concerning quantity and number, experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence. But that statement is neither scientific or mathematical. If, in order to be meaningful, a statement must be either mathematically sustained or scientifically verifiable, then David Hume's statement itself is meaningless. It's a philosophical solvent that dissolves itself. The emperor has no clothes while boasting the finest threads. So at the outset, we are faced with, as we examine competing claims to truth, we are faced with this question of, can Christ be reconciled to other religions? And the answer to that is a resounding no from Scripture, and that's why we have lunatic, liar, or Lord. The lofty claims of Christ simply cannot be harmonized with any other religion, including Islam. Because he claimed to be God, respecting him as a wonderful prophet, a teacher, and moral example is not enough. Christ requires exclusive allegiance 
and obedience. Here's what Jesus said in John 8. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not fit yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if you remember the first time in the Bible that the phrase I am was used. It was in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And God is speaking to Moses about Moses' mission to go to Pharaoh in Egypt and say, let my people go. And Moses is saying, I can't do it. I'm not worthy. I can't speak. And by the way, who am I supposed to say sent me? And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, the Lord says to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. I am that I am. And when Jesus says here, before Abraham was born, I am, he is making a claim to be God. Now, how do we know that he's making a claim to be God? Because the people who first heard him understood that. They knew that whole Exodus 3 thing. And so Jesus says this, and then it says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because he has blasphemed now, making himself God. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus was unequivocal. I am God. And Jesus says in Luke 11, He who is not with me is against me. In John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles, Jesus' first followers, believed this exclusive claim to the divinity of Jesus, and they preached it. Acts chapter 4, salvation, Peter says, is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And then Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We could give passage after passage from Scripture that shows that the Bible makes exclusive claims to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Passages such as these cause Christian apologist C.S. Lewis to remark that Christ is either a lunatic or a liar or the Lord. Those are your options. That he was crazy, that he just out and out fabricated, or he really is who he claimed to be. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. If he was not Lord, we cannot even say he was a good man for he would have been a liar. The best one could say is that he was delusional. The only other option is he was telling the truth, and therefore he is Lord. So at the outset of this survey of world religions, you need to grapple with answering the question, can Christianity be harmonized with other religions? The answer from the Bible is no. Jesus is God, and he makes exclusive claims to the allegiance of all those that he has created, everyone and everything. Now, where does Islam then fit in with that? And that's what we have on page 11. And so I will take four minutes 
to introduce Islam. And then we will pick it up there next week, all right? But top of page 11, recent events have thrust the religion of Islam into the forefront of Americans' curiosity. Many have, for the first time, been introduced to Islamic beliefs and customs. Terms like Quran, mosque, jihad, fatwa, Ramadan, imam, and names such as Allah and Muhammad have become commonplace in coffee table and water cooler discussions. Interest in Islam is at an all-time high in America, as evidenced by the numerous books and articles that are being written and devoured by Western readers. The immediate cause of such interest is the actions of a group of terrorists who, in the name of Islam, carried out horrific acts against innocent people. Many Americans wonder whether there's something inherent in Islam that tolerates or worse sanctions such atrocities. Christians wonder how Islam relates to Christianity. From where and through whom did Islam originate? Since Islam conflicts with Christianity regarding significant doctrines, as we've covered, then who's right and how can we know? To answer these questions requires we know something of the history of Islam. So that's what we will begin with next week, the career of Muhammad and how Islam developed. But we will actually start next week with this. Notice the footnote at the bottom of page 11, footnote number 10. Appendix A looks at what the Quran teaches about the use of force against unbelievers. So the first thing I want us to see is what the Quran itself says about the use of force against unbelievers and why, in fact, those who do carry out terrorist acts have basis for doing so in the holy book, the Quran itself. But I want you to see that first next week, and then we'll begin to look at the career of Muhammad and the rise of Islam, all right? Now, we need those hayride sheets, correct? So who's got the hayride sheets? Both right there? Both of them are there? All right, sweet. There's one. Just one. Where's the other one? We have it in the back here. Okay, thanks. So there's one in the back here and one here, all right? All right, let's pray, and we hope to see you next week. Father, we thank you that we can have this time and the freedom to talk about these issues of the exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, his divinity, the fact that he has no equal. And yet, Lord, there are rival claims to truth, and we are confronted with them, and we are confronted with them more and more in our day. We need to know your truth to be able to expound it to those who are confused. So help us in the weeks ahead to be clear about what your truth is, to be clear about how it compares and contrasts to rival claims. And Lord, may the fruit of this be that some come to the Lord Jesus as indeed the Lord of glory. May the fruit of this be that we're better equipped to be your ambassadors. And we ask you to help us to contemplate that role that you've assigned to us this week. Grant us safety, open doors of opportunity to speak your truth, and bring us back safely next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.